The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. On July 20th, 1969, the nation gathered around their TVs with awe and inspiration as they watched the first man to walk on the moon. I think we might have a picture of that up there. If you're over 55, you can probably remember where you were when you first saw this image sitting in front of a TV. I've read stories of people who didn't have TVs actually getting hotel rooms for the night simply so they could watch the first man to walk on the moon. You probably remember those epic words. This is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Armstrong and Aldrin walked around on the moon for three hours. They gathered moon dust and moon rocks to bring back to earth, and they planted a U.S. flag up on the moon. This was a historic achievement for man. Not just for NASA, not just for America, but for all of mankind. This was a historic achievement. Maybe. My public high school history teacher, Mr. Kettiner, was convinced that the moon landing was a hoax. He said there are a lot of places in New Mexico that look just like that. He said, look at the flag. Why is it flapping in the wind? There's no wind on the moon. And so he constantly tried to convince us that man landing on the moon, the Apollo 11 mission, was just a great big hoax to try to win the space race with the Russians. As a matter of fact, there were some opinion polls taken, and 13% of Americans believed that the moon landing was a fake, as long as well as 25% of people in England and, of course, 28% of people in Russia. As late as 2001, Fox Television Network aired a documentary called Conspiracy Theory. Did we land on the moon? And it claimed that NASA faked the first landing in 1969, again, to win the space race with Russia. And so as you look at this, by the way, just, just to ease your conscience a little bit, if you look at pictures just a second before and a second after this, the flag is the exact same shape. And so it's just wrinkled. But anyways, um, but, but why do some people believe that this happened and why do some people not believe that this happened? They have the same evidence. They've seen the same interviews. They've seen the same pictures, the same video footage. Why do some believe and why do some not believe? That is actually the question that we are facing today in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we are faced with this question, why do someone believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and why do some not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one? They have the same evidence. They have the same uh, teachings. Why do some believe and why do some not believe? For example... Why is it that 11 of the disciples were willing to proclaim Jesus as the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, till their very dying breath and even be executed for this claim, for their belief? And yet then there is Judas, 
who again saw the same things, heard the same things, and had the same experiences as these other apostles, and yet was willing to trade him for a chunk of change. Why do some believe and why do some not believe? This is the question that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to answer for us today. And to be honest with you, there is a lot more on the line than what then then what's on the line with man landing on the moon with man landing on the moon what's on the line is really american pride but what is on the line in believing in jesus is eternal salvation and so why do some believe and why do some not believe if you would open up to john chapter 12 uh, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 43 today. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you that is for you to keep if you don't have a Bible. Uh, as we read today's passage, I want you to highlight one word in your Bible, either physically with a pencil or a highlighter or just mentally in your head, and it is the word believe. Um, it occurs five times in this short passage, and it's really the focus of where God is going to draw our attention today. So let's read together. Uh, John 12, verse 35 through 41. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For I, again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, help our unbelief. As we sang this morning, Lord. Lord, maybe we're here today and we are a believer. We do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and yet unbelief still sneaks into our heart. Oh Lord, help our unbelief. Maybe there are some here today who, who simply don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, their Lord, their Savior. And yet they're here today because they are listening. Oh Lord, help their unbelief. Help us understand this passage, which is not maybe difficult to understand, but at times difficult to swallow. 
because you are God and because we are not. And so help us to receive it as a good gift from our loving God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do some believe and some not believe? My guess is many of you have asked this question. You have probably asked this question about friends, about brothers and sisters, maybe even about your parents. Why do some of them believe and others don't believe? I have sat down with many, 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 many parents of grown children who are asking this exact question day after day after day after day. Why is it that some of their adult children believe and follow Jesus? And why is it that some do not? You know, they say, we have given our children the same experience in the church. We have taught them the same Christian doctrines. We have prayed for them in the same way. And so why is it that some of our adult children and some believe and some of our adult children reject the faith? This is the question that is before us today. And as we look at this passage, we're actually going to see three types of belief. And as we look at these three types of belief, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to help us understand why some believe and why some don't believe. So the first type of belief that we see in this passage is an undeniable belief. Uh, 30, verse 35 through 36, which we're going to look at here in a second, is, is Jesus' response to a disciple's question. And really, he's not answering the disciple's question. But what we see is the response, the urgent response of a loving Savior who is soon going to depart from them. And so here, the compassion in Jesus' final words to the masses, it says in verse 35, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe. Believe in the light that you may become sons of of light. Jesus claims to be the light of the world. Last week we dove into this a little bit deeper, but we see that Jesus claims to be light because Jesus claims to be the one who illuminates reality. He illuminates what is true. He illuminates the spiritual world. Jesus claims to illuminate the character of God, the person of God, and the path of salvation. But more than that, Jesus not only claims to illuminate our minds and understanding and truth, Jesus claims to illuminate the darkened souls of men. That if we believe in the light, Jesus says we will become children of light. Or as John 1 says, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. You know, this claim of Jesus being the light of the world may have become common to you, but imagine again, and I think I'd probably say this every once in a while, imagine you're walking downtown, Green Bay, right? Maybe you're at the farmer's market, and somebody comes up to you and they say, I am the light of the world. You are walking in darkness. You need to follow me as the light of the world. And if you follow me, you'll become a child of light, and the light will dwell within you. 
What would you do in that scenario? You'd probably walk a little faster, right? Turn, get away, whatever you have to do, go on and enjoy your night. You would be extremely skeptical, right? And you should be. So how can Jesus make this claim? People of that time were just as skeptical as people are today. How can Jesus make this claim that he is the light of the world and exhort people to believe in him as the light of the world? Well, I think verse 37 tells us the answer to that. It says that Jesus had done so many signs before them. This word sign is a code word for miracle. Okay? Actually, this word sign gives us the interpretation of one of the major purposes of miracles. Miracles were signs that Jesus was who he claimed to be. That Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. In the Gospels, there are 37 different miracles recorded that Jesus had done. And the majority of them were not done in a closet in the secret. They were done in the public for many to see and to testify about. Now, certainly I can't go through all 37 miracles, but I just want to give you a couple from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine, and this happens in front of his disciples, his mother, and even an entire wedding reception. In John 5, at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, there was laying a multitude of invalids. Jesus goes up to one invalid who's been an invalid for 38 years, which tells us, This guy probably wasn't faking it, right? Who's going to fake this for 38 years? And in front of the multitudes, Jesus says to the man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And he does it in front of all these people. John 6, Jesus feeds the multitudes with five loaves and two fishes. The multitudes are 5,000 men plus women and children. So in front of 20,000 people, Jesus performs this miracle. John 9, Jesus approaches a guy born blind, spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes, and he's healed and he can see. And what we're told is this man becomes a living testimony of the miracle of Jesus as well as the invalid. It tells us in John 9, 8 that the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And then finally, John 11 the pinnacle of Jesus' miracles, Jesus attends a funeral and he raises a man from the dead. These miracles are signs. They are indicators. They are proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I don't know if you remember, but when John the Baptist was in prison, John is wanting to make absolutely sure, John is having a moment of doubt, he's wanting to make absolutely sure that Jesus really is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, go to them, and ask them, say, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And do you remember how Jesus responds? Jesus answered them saying, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. He says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. Now here's the question. Why doesn't Jesus just say, yes, I am. I'm the one. I'm the Christ. I'm the promised one. I'm the Messiah. Why doesn't he just tell John's disciples that so they can go back and say, Jesus said, thumbs up, right? Yep, he's the Messiah. Why doesn't he just do that? Because anyone can claim to be the Christ. Any of you can. I can. We can all say it, right? 
But no one else could back it up with the miraculous signs that in the Old Testament prophets, God said, would accompany the Christ that was to come. Isaiah 35, written over 500 years before the birth of Jesus. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Can I just pause there for a second? Because I think this is a very fascinating verse. Say to those who are anxious, say to those who are afraid, don't be afraid. Why shouldn't you be afraid? Because God is coming with vengeance, right? That doesn't strike fear in anyone, does it? Why should we not be afraid? Why should we not be anxious if God is coming with vengeance and with repayment? Because he has come to save you. Because at the cross, God would pour out his vengeance on our sin, our recompense, our repayment for sin upon Christ in order to save us. And so here we have, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, when God comes to save you, here are the signs that will accompany it. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are the undisputable signs that God has come to save his people. And no one else have, ever has or could replicate these signs like Jesus did. You know, most of us own a car here. And on our car, there are some signs to help us identify that car. One of those signs is a license plate, right? Hopefully you have a license plate on your car. Um, and on that license plate, there are numbers and letters, and there's a state to help identify that car from any other car across the entire world. There's also on your car a little sign. I'm not sure where it is exactly, but a VIN number. Again, with numbers, and there's letters on there, I think, too, right? But it is to uniquely identify your car. These are signs so that you know which car is your car. Jesus performs miracles in front of thousands and thousands of people. His miracles were so credible, so undeniable, that even Jesus' enemies professed that Jesus did these miracles, but they would say he does it by the power of Satan, which is creative. I got to give him that, right? But it was so undeniable. Even his enemies said, yep, he did that. Like, they couldn't deny it. The miracles of Jesus provide undeniable proof that Jesus is the Christ. Undeniable proof that Jesus is the light of the world. Undeniable proof of this great, wonderful truth that God has come to save. Amen? Do you believe? That is undeniable belief. Next we see an unbelievable unbelief. Again, verse 35 through 36, which we just read, is Jesus' last public teaching before the masses. And it, he calls people, believe, as, believe in him as the light of the world, so they may become sons of light. And then we get to the second half of verse 36, and it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before, I love that word so, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
Jesus had just done all of these signs, all of these miracles within a three-year window of his ministry, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. The evidence was undeniable. It was overwhelming that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. And so the big befuddling question of Jesus' followers was not, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the light of the world? The big befuddling question before them is, how can anybody not believe this? Because the evidence is so overwhelming. Even more specifically, how can the Jews who know the scriptures not believe that Jesus is the Christ? Even more specifically, how can the religious leaders of Israel, who not only know the scriptures, but teach the scriptures, not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? How can they not believe? Is there something that we are missing here that they know that we don't? Given the irrefutable, overwhelming evidence, how can these people not believe? You know, this is most likely the question of the disciples of Jesus in 30 AD. It's most likely the question of the disciples who are receiving John's letter, John's gospel, uh, after 70 AD. And to be honest, it should still be our question today, given all the evidence. Why do some not believe? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John answers this question. Verse 37. Again, he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By arm of the Lord, he's talking about the power of God, right? Like God's flexing his muscles. He's showing off his, his pipes, right? He's showing his power. And God displays his power through the miracles of Jesus. Verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is the glory of Jesus, and spoke of him. Do you see what this passage says? It says, they could not believe, for God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, my, my heart rebels against it. God seems cruel. He seems harsh. He even seems unfair. God preaches the gospel message to people, but hardens their hearts so they can't receive it. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? Here John is quoting from Isaiah 6, which is also quoted in Mark 4. We'll read it, Isaiah 6 in a second, but it's also quoted in Mark 4 and Acts 28, and it's probably the underpinning uh, uh, passage for Romans 11. And in all of these passages... They're using Isaiah 6 to communicate the judicial hardening of men by God. The judicial hardening of men by God. In other words, God is hardening their heart as a judicial punishment upon them. A punishment for hardening their own heart before God. Isaiah 6 says this. You can follow along on the screen. It says, this is Isaiah talking about a vision he had. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, 
ooh, 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 here I am, send me. Can you imagine how excited he is? The Lord says, we need to send a messenger to God's people. And Isaiah's like, yes, I'll do it. Verse 9. <laughs> and the Lord said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the quote that we get in John chapter 12. Then I said, how long, O Lord? (laughs) He seems a little less excited by this mission. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The Lord calls Isaiah to go to Judea and to warn the people about the coming judgment of God and to call them to repentance. And yet the Lord calls Isaiah to do this saying, you know what, Israel's heart is going to be hardened. Their ears are going to be stopped up. They're not going to listen. Their hearts will be hard. And from this context, what we know is that the hard hearts to Isaiah's message is the judgment of God on these people. Judgment because for centuries, not for decades, but for centuries... The people of God refused to see. They refused to hear or perceive the word of God. For centuries, they chased after other idols, other gods. They would not repent. They would not turn back to God. The God who was willing and gracious to forgive them and to save them and to establish them and to sustain them. Isaiah 6 is an example of judicial hardening, meaning God's hardening of their hearts is a righteous and just punishment for their own hardening of hearts for centuries. Looking back in John 12, we see that even in this passage. Look, it's, it's, I missed it, but it's here. Verse 37, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, and then what's the word? they. They still did not believe in him. Who didn't believe? They didn't believe. And then verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. So verse 37, they did not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe. Do you see the judicial hardening going on here in this passage? Do you see God is hardening the hearts of those who have hardened their hearts against God as a judicial judgment upon them to bring more severe justice and righteousness and wrath upon them? The same thing happens in the book of Exodus. If you remember, Moses is called by the Lord to go to Pharaoh and to sing, let my people go, right? And so Moses goes and he sings that wonderful ballad. And Pharaoh's like, no, are you kidding? Like, you guys are great. You you built the nation. You're slaves. I'm not going to let you go. And so then God shows off his pipes. He shows off his arm. He shows off his might by sending a plague. And so Moses goes back to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. And this, this, this repeats nine times, if I do the math correctly, right? Where, where God shows off his power, his might, 
hardens, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And so it increases the judgment upon them. Now, what is so interesting when you read through this passage is that some of the times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Other times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet other times it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so the question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let the people of God go, even though he saw the arm of God, the might of God, the power of God, the signs of God, the miracles of God. He saw all these things, and yet he hardened his heart. And so God, as a form of punishment upon Pharaoh, hardens his heart all the more, bringing judgment and suffering on Pharaoh for his rebellion. Friends, make no mistake. When God hardens someone's heart, God is not forcing that person to do something they do not want to do. Rather, God is doing exactly what they want. The evidence of the Trinitarian God is all around us today. There is evidence of God the Father in the majesty and glory of creation. The evidence of Jesus as seen in his numerous public miracles that we talked about. The evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit miraculously changes the lives of God's people. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is coming against those who deny this truth. Because by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. They hold it down. The truth is there. It's, it's available to be seen, but they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, continues Paul, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, in their heads intellectually. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so why do some not believe? Because they have suppressed the obvious truth and they have hardened their hearts against God. And as judgment against them, God has solidified that hardness of heart. And so far, we have seen the undeniable belief because of the miracles of Jesus, the unbelievable unbelief which hardens its heart against clear evidence of the existence of God and Christ as our Savior. And then finally, we see an unconfessed belief. Verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You know, being put out of the synagogue is probably something that is hard for us to understand the ramifications of in today's culture. Certainly, the synagogue was the center of, of the religious worship of the people of God, but it was also the center of ideas, the center of fellowship, the center of connection with the community around them. And so if these people believe, confess that they believe in Jesus, what they think, and this is probably true, is that they would be put out of the synagogues. Now what made this a greater danger for the religious leaders of that community is the synagogue was not only a center of community for them, but it was also the center of their financial income. 
This is how they were paid, because they were a part of the synagogue. And if they were kicked out of the synagogue, then they would have lost their job, their livelihood, their ability to provide for their family. And not only would they be kicked out of the synagogue, they would have been blackballed, and other Jews in that area would not have hired them. And so there was a great risk in confessing that they believed in Jesus. You know, I was trying to think of a modern-day example for us, and I don't think there really is one, but I know in Muslim countries that if a Muslim converts to Christianity, they lose everything except for the most important thing. And this is what was facing the Jews of the day. And so some believe intellectually that Jesus was the Messiah, but they would not confess it publicly. You know, John gives an example of such a man in his gospel, a man who believed Jesus was the promised one, but would not confess it publicly. In John chapter 3, we read this. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why did he become, come by night? Because he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want anyone to know that he's coming to talk to Jesus out of fear of judgment upon him. So this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, it's a sign of respect. We know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And then notice how this parallels today's passage. He goes on and says, for no one can do these signs, these miracles that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus believes to some degree, but only under the cover of night, only in secret, at least here in John chapter 3. Maybe things change for Nicodemus. Let me ask, are you a Nicodemus? Or better yet, where are you a Nicodemus? Maybe you're fine being expressive and confessing your faith around your family, but it's off limits at the workplace because your fear of how people will react to it. Or maybe you're fine confessing it at the workplace for whatever reason, but you don't want to confess it around your family because you're afraid that they will put you out of the family. Or maybe you're fine sharing it around family and you're fine sharing it at work, but around your buddies, man, you don't want to share it there because you just don't know what they'll say. Why is it that there are circles in our life that we don't want to confess Jesus before? Well, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes it painfully clear why that is the case. Verse 43, he says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You know, last week we talked about how all of us are glory seekers and we're all seeking glory the question isn't if we're seeking glory, but where we're seeking glory from. The religious leaders did not confess Jesus because they loved the glory of man. They loved how men befriended them, how men honored them, how men looked up to them, how men approved of them. Let's face it. We seek men's approval as well. We want to be liked by others. We want to be cool. It's like junior high has just continued for the rest of our lives. We want to be cool. What sphere of your life do you not confess Jesus? What we learn in today's passage is in that sphere, you are seeking the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. 
You know, before writing my journey evangelism study, I surveyed the congregation asking, what are the greatest barriers to sharing your faith? Number one answer, which is also mine, is fear of rejection. Number two answer, and these two are way above the rest, was feeling unequipped. In other words, I'm afraid I'm going to make a fool of myself. Both of those go back to what? Wanting the glory that comes from man instead of the glory that comes from God. Fearing man above God. A Barnapol reaffirms this. I've read this to you before several years ago. Barnapol says this. Adults are most likely to claim they have a responsibility to share their religious beliefs with other people if they live in Birmingham, Alabama. And it says that perspective is least common in Providence, Rhode Island and Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so let me ask you, is that okay? Is it okay for us to have a private faith, a non-confessing faith, a hidden faith? Well, let me just tell you what Jesus says. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, our faith must be personal, but it must never be private. If your faith does not transform your speech, there is a good chance that it has never transformed your heart. Where do you need to be a louder Christian? Don't get me wrong, Jesus is not calling us to be abrasive and annoying and disrespectful. Matter of fact, we're called to share with gentleness and respect. But where do you need to let your light shine that you have kept in darkness? What sphere of your life are you fearing man and seeking the glory of man more than the glory of God? Many believed in him, but for fear they did not confess it because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You know, in our church, I'll end with this, there's a group of women who gather uh, weekly to pray for their prodigal children, for children who have abandoned the faith, rejected the faith. And as we look at this passage, we may ask the question, why would we pray? I mean, why would we pray for our children who have turned away from the Lord? If God judicially hardens the hearts of those who have hardened their heart against him, why would we pray? Isn't that just an exercise in futility? And the answer is no, because the same God that is powerful enough to judiciously harden the hearts of hard-hearted people is the same God that is powerful enough to mercifully soften the hearts of hard-hearted people. You see, all of us have sinned and hardened our hearts against God, and yet God has chosen to dispense his mercy upon some of us to soften our hearts and draw us back to himself. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, we read this. God God gives this proclamation, this promise in the Old Testament. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, your hard heart, from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Christians, we have an unbelievable, an undeniable belief because of the glory of creation 
the credibility of Christ's miracles, the proof of his resurrection. And yet there are still many who have an unbelievable unbelief as they suppress the truth, as they deny the realities of, the, of God and of the gospel. And so let us continue to confess what we believe, praying that by the mercy of God, he will soften hard hearts and many more will believe and be saved from their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord God, in this passage today, you've kind of removed a veil and shown us what's going on behind the scenes and the hearts have been. And yet it is still a mystery to us. It is beyond our comprehension. And so, Lord, pray simply that, that we would give thanks that you have given us hearts to receive your grace. God, pray that we would never stop proclaiming Christ, confessing Christ to those around us, Lord. Give us courage in the spheres where we're scared to confess Christ. Lord God, we pray for those who have hard hearts that we love so dearly. And there are so many, God. Lord, we pray that you would soften their hearts. That by your mercy, not by your justice, but by your mercy, you will soften their hearts to receive the love of Christ and to know a God who saves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.